Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston, and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how, and what we write. My guest today is the novelist and screenwriter, Lauren Bukas. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. You're very welcome. I'm thrilled to be talking with you. I'm a big fan. Um, But for listeners who may not be familiar with your work, just briefly tell us who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, I'm a South African novelist. I am the author of Zoo City and The Shining Girls. Uh, I've won the Arthur C. Clarke Award and a couple of other awards. Uh, My novels are published in 25, 26 countries. Um, And I like to kind of do strange genre mashups, often between kind of uh, kind of high concept thrillers. My most recent book is called Afterland, and it's about a world where 99% of the men have died uh, in a global pandemic. So that's been a fun thing to <laughs> have come out right now. Yeah, uh, accidentally topical. That's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that must be fun. <laughs> so, how did you get started? I mean, you you are from South Africa originally, yes? I am. I. I've wanted to be a writer since I was five years old when I found out that you could get paid to make up stories. That was a job that you could have. Um, and I've just been really fully committed to it since then. And obviously it's not, you know, in many cases, it's not a very well-paying job, but luckily I came to it through journalism, which gave me a taste for that. Um, and of course now I'm, you know, I'm in the very lucky position where I have actually made a considerable amount of money from my work. Um, and that's been really amazing and a huge privilege. So do you think that your background, I mean, you, you say you always wanted to write, so you always wanted to write fiction, but did you see journalism as a way into that or did you just kind of happen into it? I kind of fell into it. Um, I, I came back from traveling overseas. I went backpacking around the world for a year. I was 20, 21. And, um, and I just desperately wanted to write. It was the only thing I wanted to do. I'd written this epic novel when I was 17 years old, which I still intend to burn. So it never sees the light of day. <laughs> And, uh, I, I, and I couldn't figure out how to get into writing. So I ended up getting a job working at a uh, computer shop, um, as the video games expert. And I then got into writing reviews for a magazine. They started, they started a new magazine. And I said, well, if you have a new magazine starting, what you're going to need is new staff. So it was very cheeky, but they actually hired me. And after, you know, two years of writing about, um, technology and printer roundups, but also kind of Lara Croft as like a pop culture icon, I left the magazine and I went freelance. And that really gave me kind of this backstage pass to the world. And I think that made my writing much richer, much more interesting because I was constantly going out and interviewing all kinds of different people from HIV positive activists who described love as a virus to um, electricity cable thieves in South Africa's townships um, to teenage vampires and just getting all those different perspectives, getting this kind of, um, yeah, whole pass to these really interesting places and people and how they think differently and how they describe themselves really was fundamental to who I am as a novelist. I I would say that shows through. Yeah. Um, do you think also that going freelance as a journalist gave you, I mean, obviously freelance journalists have to hustle pretty hard to make a living. Uh, yeah, that was a pretty good um, way to, it, it was good practice for becoming a novelist as well, is that you constantly have to hustle. You've got to get over rejection. You know, I'd constantly be pitching stories and getting shut down. And and also I had to do some really crappy work in between. Um, 
I remember when, when you know, I, I was writing for some business magazines and I'd have to do stories on the best small conference venues in the Western Cape. <laughs> and as a skill exercise, to be able to write that in a way that I didn't want to kill myself and the person reading it didn't want to kill themselves was actually really important um, to try and find even the most, a way to make even the most boring subjects kind of engaging uh, was actually pretty useful as a skill. Yeah, I think that's quite instructive. I um, I haven't done journalism in the sense that you did, but you know I, I've written nonfiction and uh, I used to do some stuff for computer magazines. And yeah, yeah, I would sometimes be given a commission about something I didn't really have any interest in, but it's a job, you know, it's work. And totally. as you say, trying to write about that in a way that that doesn't make you want to <laughs> you know, throw yourself, throw yourself off, off cliff, the yeah. roof. Yeah. <laughs> is quite uh quite an education totally yeah. so uh and yeah you worked the usual crappy jobs and what have you and then you so how did you sell your first novel so i actually was commissioned to write a non-fiction it was a pop history about um amazing south african women through history and it was called maverick extraordinary women from south africa's past and they gave me free range to like be able to do whoever i wanted so i included like a serial murderer daisy demelka from the 1930s who poisoned at least two husbands and her adult son, but possibly kind of up to eight to nine more people. But also, you know, uh, apart, anti-apartheid struggle activists, um, uh, early feminists in South Africa, and and Brenda Fussy, who's the most amazing singer. And I think that was kind of a direct line to The Shining Girls as well, as kind of, you know, because they were short biographies about really interesting women who were mavericks in their time, which I think really got, you know, tied into the shiny girls. I was writing my novel at the time, my first novel, Moxieland. And you know what? I found any excuse to go back and just rewrite the first three chapters over and over and over again. I've got an expression for this, which is, uh, I call it doing donuts in the parking lot on the motorcycle of doubt, <laughs> <laughs> where you're just wheel spinning and not doing anything useful. And actually what you need to do is finish the book. So finally I finished the book, but only because I was doing my master's in creative writing and the University of Cape Town threatened to throw me out, even though I was paying fees because they're like, you're embarrassing us. This has been four and a half years. Where's, <laughs> where's your master's? Where's this novel? And then I finished it in, you know, three months. And it was it was exactly that kind of pressure I needed to get me off the motorcycle of doubt, um, stop doing donuts, like actually blaze ahead on the highway and get somewhere. <laughs> That's, I mean, that ties back into that sort of motivation of the journalistic life as well, doesn't it? Is, Absolutely, a deadline. Exactly, exactly. It's like, okay, well, I've got to get it done. Now I don't have a choice. Absolutely. Um, and to have a meaningful deadline was like really, really useful, you know, that I, you're going to get thrown out. Um so, but then it took me a year to sell it because it was this written in this very kind of experimental way. Um, you know, I mean, it was written by a 25 year old. So, uh, and I was really trying to push language and I was trying to do some really interesting things with South African slang. And ultimately I, re I realized that I was getting in my own way. It was like, well, is this an experiment in how far you can push language or is this a story that you want to tell? And if the language is getting in the way of the story, you've got to cut it back. Um, so I did a huge rewrite and I cut out most of the kind of weird slang and um, and shopped it around and shopped it around. I got like terrible rejections. Uh, Philip K. Dick's agent rejected me because he said it was like having sex on a skateboard, which apparently is a bad thing. I was going to say, how is that a criticism? Huh? I, I don't know. I feel like that's, you know, that shows some skills right there. Uh, but apparently it'd be too distracting. 
to have sex on a skateboard. You wouldn't actually be able to do it properly. It was still a very, very weird analogy. Um, and finally, I found a very um, an amazing South African publisher called Jukana who really take risks on like new voices. And the publishing director read it on the plane on the way to the Frankfurt Book Fair. And by the time you know she landed, I had a book deal, which was unbelievable. Um, and I think paid diddly squat as all first book deals do. Exactly, yeah. absolutely. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of how it started. That's fantastic. Uh, so did you sign, was that a multi-book deal with them or just the, the one No, book? it was just the first book. Um, so then I got an agent. Oh, so you sold that book without an agent? Yeah. I mean, you can do that in South Africa. The publishing industry works very differently here. But also, you know, in South Africa, if you sell a thousand copies of a book, you're, you're a bestseller. Oh, I see. And most books only sell like 600 copies and you earn about 10 rand a book, which is about 50p. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think Moxieland made 8,000 rand divided by two, so four, 400 pounds. But that was enough to get you an agent, which then led on to further deals? Yes, a small South African agent um, who was very lovely, but didn't, you actually, you need an agent to be based in New York or, or London. Um, and he was based in Cape Town. He wasn't able to take editors for lunch. You know, he was, I was, one of his first clients, he was my first agent. Neither of us really knew what we were doing. And that's been a really big life lesson to me is, um, you know, you shouldn't go with the first agent who says yes. It's like dating. You know, if you, if you went home with the very first person who said yes and got married and had children with them, that's not, that's not a great way to do it. It's a lifetime business partnership. So it's actually taken me four agents to get to my, my lifetime guy who's Ollie Munson at AM Heath. Um, and it was a process and, and I learned a lot along the way. And and that's why I'm always very, when I'm giving, especially South African writers, um, advice, I'm like, let me see your contract. Let me see what it says. Don't sign away world rights because I've learned a lot along the way. And if I can try and help other people not get into the same situation and and have the same kind of life lessons that I had, that'd be great because I can save them a lot of time. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, yeah, a good agent, obviously any writer will tell you a good agent is invaluable, but I think you kind of touched on something there that's interesting about not just agents, but generally people in general that you work with, uh, whether they're agents or producers or publishers or editors, you know, find, people who are in a position to do you the most good, uh, as you say, rather than the first people that come along necessarily. It's the same with kind of getting writing feedback. And part of the reason Afterland has taken me so long is because I got divorced and um, my ex-husband had always been my first reader. And I really struggled to find another first reader who I could trust in the same way. Um, And I think, you know, some people find this when they're starting out and they're joining a writer's group and you've got to know what criticism you can listen to and what's right and also be able to trust your gut. You know, you have to be able to get rid of your ego. So much of writing and editing is being able to to have enough ego to like know that you've got the story that you want to tell, but also prevent yourself from getting in your own way um, by having too much ego and being too precious about things. So I think especially with writing groups, you can find people who, who fundamentally don't get your stuff and they're not going to like it and they're going to tear you to shreds. So you've got to find this, this very tricky balance of trusting in yourself enough, but also being open to listening to what other people have to say. Yeah, I've talked about that before, the sort of 
as you say, very delicate balance between having an ego, having, you know, as one uh, author that I've talked to put it, deluding yourself into thinking you can write a novel. Absolutely. But then, all, but then also <laughs> being humble enough at the other end of it to take that feedback and take the criticism and understand that it is a work in progress. It's, uh, yeah, it can be tricky. You know, it's interesting. It's it's a lot like being a first-time parent. I remember when I just had my baby and and also just being pregnant. You know, everyone was giving me advice from rando, randos on the street to, you know, other parents, uh, my mother. And my mother wasn't too bad. I shouldn't rip her off. Um, and I became very good at smiling and nodding and listening to what they had to say and then checking in with myself about what I thought was good advice and what was bad advice and how that stacked up to what I'd read and what my doctor said and being able to dismiss the stuff that I thought was bad um, or didn't work for me. And do you find it's th th that you do work the same way when you're taking feedback on your writing then? Yes, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I've just been working on a TV pitch, which I can't talk too much about, but, you know, we, we push back very hard on with our producers on the ending. Um, and, and they explained it again. And I was like, oh my God, you're completely right. Like I hadn't thought of it that way. And actually you're right. And this does make it stronger and more interesting. And we did have like five endings in there and I didn't want to do the Hobbits or the Lord of the Rings where you have, you know, <laughs> an extended 20 minutes of ending after it's already ended. So yeah, I think it's trusting your gut, but also learning to take criticism. Yeah. My, uh, my rule of thumb is if one person gives me a note that I disagree with and nobody else gives that note, then yeah. I will stick to my guns. But if Absolutely. two or three people start giving the same note, whether I agree with it or not, I will seriously consider, you know, how I can change it or if I can just do something that makes the note itself go away. But again, this comes down to picking your people, you know, in, in the first place and making sure that you have the right people whose opinions you can trust. And I think one important thing if you're starting a writer's group or you're joining one is to know that other people read the kinds of books that you are trying to write. You know, that I, I don't think it'd be very useful if you're a romance writer to go to a horror group, for example. Yeah, that's very true. I actually, I found that when I was a young man, I joined a, a writer's circle and it was full of people who just, we had completely, we were different generations. We had completely different cultural touchstones they were not interested in the sort of thing I wanted to write. I was not interested in the sort of thing they wanted to write. They were lovely people. But not right for you. Yeah, it was absolutely useless to me, unfortunately, as a, a as a sort of writing exercise. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned writing groups, but do you have, uh, absent your ex-husband now, do you have a, a group of beta readers? I do. So um, I found, it saved me a, a little while, but I found some really, really good people in my life um, whose opinions I really trust. And it's also just been kind of um, a huge privilege to be able to continue working with my longtime South African editor, Helen Moffat, who reads all my stuff and, and often will disagree, and, but most of the time she's right. And, and that can be very annoying as well. It was interesting. <laughs> when I wrote The Shining Girls, there was one chapter I'd done kind of, it was quite slapdash, um, and i just kind of thrown the words down and I was waiting for someone to call me on it and no one did. And I went through my American editors and, you know, my British editors and I was like, oh, okay, maybe, maybe I'm just better than I think. And Helen read this chapter and she just sent me an email saying, Lauren, this chapter really. And I was like, I know. 
<laughs> I know, I know, I know. Why did you have to catch it? Why did you have to call me on it? Um, but it was perfect, you know, and, and so she's absolutely wonderful. And I've got some really close, trusted friends who are just absolutely phenomenal. And, and, you know, I think it's also been a process, you know, I think we put ourselves under a lot of pressure and sometimes big life stuff happens to us, like giant, terrifying, you know, epidemic outbreaks, pandemic outbreaks. Um, and I think we all have to be gentler on ourselves. You know, I think what I was doing for the first few years after my divorce was actually rebuilding my life. And that was the narrative I was working on. Um, so trying to write a novel as well in the middle of that was, you know, it was quite a lot to try and deal with. And I put myself under way too much pressure. And then, you know, I think a lot of writers are like this, you know, that, that devil critic on your shoulder is just the worst. And louder than the angel on the other shoulder. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. So, so again, like just about getting off that motorcycle of self-doubt. Well, and you are also, as you said, you're also raising a child at this yeah, point. Um, definitely. Yeah. So you're, you're now presumably a single parent. Uh, that's, that's got to add to the pressure. Of course. Um, you know, she's 11, which I think is, um, uh, its own kind of difficulty. Like having a baby was, was hell. Um, she was very, very difficult as a baby, but like an 11 year old who has like very strong opinions and finds me mortifyingly embarrassing when I do a zoom book launch, for example. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's actually great. Cause I think also being a parent, you know, my kid always keeps me in check. I remember coming back from winning, winning the Arthur C. Clarke award in 2011 and I flew back into South Africa and suddenly there was like international press about me and, you know, it, it was massive. It was this massive change. I had like journalists, like, you know, I'd be trying to read to my daughter in like the local bookshop and like, and fans would come up and talk to me. And I was like, what is happening? And it was so great to have her as an ego check because she didn't care about any of that stuff. She cared that strangers were interrupting our reading time. And she cared that her mom was home and that she could climb on my head. <laughs> and it, I think it's very good to like have, you know, like just, just an anchor point in your life that you can be like, okay, all right. I'm not, I'm not actually all that. Um, yeah. or I'm a human first and yeah. I, I think that is very important. Uh, I don't have children, but, uh, I did up until uh, very recently I had dogs, a couple of quite large dogs that, you know, who needed looking after. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I had the same thing when I got back from, I had a, you know, a whirlwind two months around, uh, the premiere and launch of Atomic Blonde. Yeah. And I was being flown everywhere first class and, you know, uh, premiere parties at the top of the tallest building in LA and stuff like that. And it was like, well, Hey, great. You know, cock of the walk. And uh -huh. then, yeah, you come home and you're, you know, like pulling worms out of your dog's backside and, uh, <laughs> you know, pick, picking up their, uh, poo in a bag in the field at the back. Yeah. Here. It's just like, Oh, real life is still goes on. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think that's also what a lot of people deal with is, you know, as soon as your books come out, you've put like, you know, so much of your life into the making this thing. And, and it's always a bit of a come down because it comes out. And, you know, I have friends who've just done PhDs who've had exactly the same experience. Like you, you've committed so much of your life and your time and made sacrifices to do this and spent like long hours sitting alone in front of your computer, um, not being human. And, and it comes out and, and and it doesn't change your life. Or maybe it does change your life for a short time. And you go and do the international book tour and it's glamorous and cool and exciting. And, you know, but then you come home and you still have to do the dishes and you still have to pull the worms out of your dog's butt. I'm never going to be able to let go of that image. Thank you. <laughs> well, and you still have to write. 
And you That's still have to write. Thing. Why is the writing still going on? It's like, I already did this. <laughs> right. But I mean, the more time that you spend, you know, being the the glamorous author, being interviewed and doing your uh, PR and all that stuff is time that you're not writing. And there comes exactly. a point, you know, unless you are, well, no, I was going to say unless you're Stephen King or something, but even Stephen King continues to write. There comes a point where everybody says, okay, enough of that. What have you got now? You know, we've talked, we've, you, Put all that stuff in the past. What's next? Everybody's always wondering what's going to be next. Yeah. I actually wrote Broken Monsters while I was touring Shining Girls. Uh, because I had a meaningful deadline, I you know, I had to deliver a book by the end of that year. Um, but it, it broke me. And I think that's also part of why Offland took so long was, I, you know, I really... I was, I was exhausted. I was flying all around the world. And I know that's a massive privilege. And I know it's incredible to be able to go to different countries and have your book in translation. But it's also incredibly isolating. It's incredibly lonely. Um, you're in these glamorous places with these interesting new people, but none of them are actually your friends. And at the mm. end of the day, you're going back to a fancy hotel room by yourself. And if you go down to the bar, the only interesting people there are probably, there aren't any interesting people there. They're medical salespeople. Um, and, and it's not your life. It's like this kind of limbo life. And I was away, I think, for, I think I was away for 13 weeks or nine weeks. Ooh, it was a, yeah. in a year. And I had a, I had a small child and it was just exhausting and, and very, very difficult. And I wrote a book through that. And I think that's part of why Broken Monsters is so very, very dark. And yeah, so, so I wouldn't recommend it. You know, I wouldn't recommend trying to travel and write a book at the same time. I think we all need to be gentler on ourselves. Funnily enough, I read Broken Monsters mostly while I was traveling. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but I also, uh, I'm absolutely with you. I, I tried many, you know, when I was starting out, I tried writing while traveling because I was, mm. I would do a lot of comic cons yeah. or yeah, a lot of traveling for on-site video game work, that sort of thing. And I would try to, I'd take my laptop with me and dutifully sit there and try to write, uh, you know, other stuff, original stuff while mm. I was on the move. And I just, I could never get it done. And it took a long time for me to be honest enough with myself to go, do you know what? This is not something I can do. Yeah, I've tried, God, God knows I've tried, but I simply can't do it. And so instead I've got to find something else to do and just not worry about the fact that I'm not writing when I'm traveling. And so what I do instead now when I'm traveling, te I tend to read. Yeah. Uh, I will take several books with me because that I can do. And I'll take a notebook. I can make notes, but mostly I'll read. And that is then time that I'm not spending reading at home, if that makes sense. You know, I'm kind of... Yes, absolutely. Definitely. I want to spend the same amount of time writing and reading as I always do. I just have to apportion how I do it differently to make the most of that time. Yep. I mean, that makes perfect sense. And I think it's also worth noting that everyone's process is different. There are, will be some people who love riding on the road. I mean, I do, I do find airplanes very useful. I think it's also because South Africa is so very far from everywhere and there's no Wi-Fi. you know, so to get to the UK is like 11 and a half hours to get to the States is like 17 to 19 hours. And that's a lot of really good riding time. But also sometimes that's like, you know what? I'm tired. I'm jet lagged. I just want to sit and watch this dumb movie. And that's okay too. As you say, everybody's process is different and that's that's a really important part of, well, it's one of the reasons that I do this show. You know, part of it is that I want to talk to as many people as I can and help listeners and especially aspiring writers uh, amongst the audience realize that we're all different. You know, there are some touchstones that we all have in common. You mentioned earlier the idea of 
just having to get that first draft written is something that keeps coming up. I'm a big advocate of it. Yeah. You know, it comes up again and again, but our individual processes are often very, very different. So let's get into that then. Let's get, get a bit more sort of mundane. Tell me, what is your typical writing day like? Um, avoiding writing for as long as possible until I'm overcome <laughs> with sick guilt and anxiety and then try to cram all of it in the last two hours of the day. Um, but I'm trying to be better. <laughs> so are you, one, are, you, are you one of these people who does your social media first? Yes, because I'm an idiot. I, I've been trying to like get into better habits. And certainly when I was finishing Afterland, you know, I just had like long writing days. Uh, but I, I do try and intersperse it with exercise, um, getting outside, going for a walk. Um, and I think the hardest part is starting, which I'm sure has come up lots in your conversations with people as well. Mm. It's uh, you know, a, friend, a writer friend of mine, Julian Gardy, was talking about this the other day about how writers don't have warm up exercises. You know, whereas pianists do scales, rugby players like run around the field a couple of times before they like get into it. And I'm trying to find ways of getting into it that are that that work in the same kind of way. Yeah, it's interesting how how t- how mentally taxing writing is. Um, and uh, uh, Jason Arnup is a wonderful British writer, and he's got a saying which is that um, writing isn't hard like being a firefighter is hard. Writing is hard, like being on fire. And I'm like, oh, yes, that is completely how I feel. Um, but trying to hold this entire world together and like all the characters and the narrative threads. And of course, it never comes out exactly the way you imagined it. Like this platonic ideal in your head just never translates to the page somehow. And sometimes it's much more interesting. Um, but it's always different. But it's always different. It's always different. Yeah. There is this common misconception uh that because we just sit at a computer all day and type that uh yeah it's not really hard work and no physically it's not obviously uh but as you say mentally it is you know and it's difficult because it's not life and death no you know you could say oh well it's taxing like being a doctor or something well yeah but you know we're not talking about we're not responsible for people's health no um we're not we're not even packing supermarket shelves no, no, we are absolutely well. We are absolutely not essential key workers, as no. the uh, as the modern vernacular has it. Although, when this, you know, as we're in the middle, as we record in the middle of this uh, sort of global lockdown, I know quite a few authors who've had this conversation with readers, who, uh, you know, with sort of more avid readers, who say to them, actually, your work, you know, and reading books and stuff like that is what's keeping me sane right Definitely. now. So. It may not be essential in terms of life or death, but it is still very important to to people's mental health. Yeah, and you know, it's 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 essential to the human imagination. Um, and this idea of a book as this telepathic message that you are able to send to someone else, um, and it's a conversation, right? It's and the conversation is not between you and the reader. The conversation is between the reader and the book, which is often why I find it quite discomforting when people come up to me and and again like huge honor to have fans but some people will come up and expect us to be best friends immediately because they had such a great connection with my book and they'll be talking at me rather than to me and and I'm like I'm not actually the book and I appreciate that you that my work resonated with you so much but that's between you and the book it's actually got nothing to do with me and I I don't understand what it meant to you and, and I'd love to have that conversation with you but 
but I am just this kind of dorky writer person and not actually this amazing book, which took you to this transportive, imaginative adventure and this, this experience that you had. I, I wasn't actually part of it. I like that idea of books as a form of telepathy. I think I stole that from Stephen King. <laughs> Didn't we all steal everything? Oh, absolutely. Stephen King. <laughs> so um, what is your, I mean, if you, in the way that you work, do you have an established or an average daily word count or does it vary wildly from day to day? Um, I try to do at least a thousand words a day. On a really good day, I think I did 12,000 words, um, but wow. that was with a lot of coffee and I wouldn't necessarily recommend that. While I was working on The Shining Girls, I actually had a panic attack um, because I was under so much stress and so much pressure. I thought I was having a heart attack. And of course, the symptoms for women are different to the symptoms for men because uh, the entire field of medicine has concentrated on uh, biological men rather than everyone else, and specifically white men. But that's a whole other discussion. But I, but yeah, I thought I was having a heart attack. I raced down to ER and they, you know, wired me up and, and they were like, no, you have acid reflux. But actually, I think it was a panic attack. And it was just this incredible amount of pressure that I put myself under. And and I think that's something we have to be very careful of as well. You know, um, uh, I did a lot of research on nootropic drugs, which are uh, the meds that can help you focus and concentrate um, and be more creative. And, you know, and that ranges from, you know, microdosing with LSD through to uh, something like modafinil. And I read this great article where the guy was like, listen, I spent a year trying all of these different things and I, and I don't know how to tell you, but what works is getting enough sleep, eating well and getting exercise. Yep. And that's, I think it really, again, you know, this comes back to your dogs and being a human at the end of the day is, is to be able to be creative, to be able to be imaginative, to be able to write well and to be able to be engaging. We actually need to be fully functioning humans ourselves. Um, and those are the really important things to look for and coffee. <laughs> yeah. But it, but you're right that it is really, I've certainly found over the years, it, it becomes ever more important to realize it's okay to not be working. Yeah. Like I am, you know, like many writers, I know like many people, I am one of these people who often feels a bit guilty when I'm not working. I feel yes. like I should be always working all the time. And obviously that's not healthy. Um, and it, yeah, it takes me a long time to get to a point where as long as I do, as you say, you know, your thousand words for me, it's 1500, but although at the moment it is more like a thousand, because again, admitting that I can't write as well as I would normally do as I used to during this pandemic lockdown, Yeah, as long as I can get that thousand words done, then it's okay. I can spend the rest of the day relaxing, you know, doing a bit of admin, whatever, but not worrying about, oh, I need to be writing more chapters. Exactly. And I think that kind of building that kind of routine is essential. I have, I have historically not been very good at it. Um, and again, I think it's my journalist brain is I'm always trying to find another deadline that's more urgent. Um, and the novel, the novel is this big kind of nebulous thing that needs to be gotten to at some point. But yeah, I think that setting yourself a daily target word count, actually finding a specific time to do that in. Um, and then also giving yourself your brain downtime to be able to you know, whether that's taking a long shower, although in South Africa, we don't do those anymore because we had the water crisis or having a long walk, which we also can't do right now because our lockdown is very severe <laughs> and we're actually not allowed to leave the house unless you're going to get groceries. Um, uh, so I'm doing a lot of Just Dance, uh, which is a game on the Nintendo Switch, which is very silly and fun. Um, yep. And and yeah, just I think finding something which allows your brain to drift a bit um, and to find those kind of creative problems 
uh, problem solving. It's very, very important. And that's very much part of the process. It's really important. Yeah. Um, I've actually written a book about uh, sort of daily routine and what have you called The Organised Writer, which comes out later this year. I'm going to send you a copy. Please. Because it sounds like there might be some <laughs> stuff in there that could help you. <laughs> um, but, but you're right. It's uh, taking the time to let your brain mull things over is really important uh, because that's often where you will find your subconscious comes up with and I'm I'm always wary of kind of depersonifying the brain and trying to separate it from ourselves because obviously it is all really us. Yes. But nevertheless, that's when the subconscious comes up with solutions to these thorny problems that could otherwise have you just, you know, bleeding at the keyboard. Absolutely. Um and bleeding at the keyboard is not fun. No. Or it's not my favorite. <laughs> um <laughs> I think there's also, you know, if we're talking about subconscious, what's interesting to me, you know, when you have this platonic ideal of the book and how things should be, what's magic for me is that subconscious moment. It's it's an alchemy where you're thinking something, but in the and about how the story should go and like what's going to happen next in this chapter, and something will happen between the brain, you know, the, the thought firing in your brain and your fingers on the keyboard, and it'll shift. And you'll start writing something slightly different where the character does something unexpected. And, and it is this kind of subconscious magic. And it does feel like a very small kind of possession. Um, and it's not that the characters inhabit me or that they're controlling me, but sometimes it's my favorite part is when something happens between my thoughts and fingers on keyboards and it shifts in a different direction, which is always more interesting. Yeah. And do you often find that that comes? when you pause for a moment? I think it often comes in flow when I'm like deep in flow um, oh, and okay. just kind of letting the story run. That's interesting. I'm the other way around. Like when right. I'm in flow, I will generally just keep going along the same, you know, the same path that I intended to when I started. But when I pause and take a minute to think, that's when suddenly I'll go, oh, wait a second. What about if I did that? And, you know, as you say, that shift will happen and then I can get back to and often, you know, end up rewriting the previous paragraph. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, yeah, and that's that's the other thing, right? Is like when you spend a day writing and you look at it the next day and you're like, oh, wow, this thousand words is terrible, but I can save this hundred words, or I can save this fifty words, or I can save this sentence. Um, but then to not go back and go over those damn like thousand words again, like to actually just keep going forward. I, d I tend to make notes in line as I'm going. If I have that sort of yeah, if I have that thought and I realize that, oh, actually the last, as you say, thousand words that I've written needs to be rewritten to accommodate some new thought I've had, I'll just make a note in line. I put it in square brackets normally. Definitely. Uh, and then carry on. Yeah. And so I'll note what I need to change, but I won't go back and change it until that first draft is done. I find using Scrivener very helpful for this because you can, you know, you can, you can divide up the chapters so easily and you can do that. It has this incredible snapshot fe feature where you can take a snapshot of your current version and you can have like 4,000 snapshots of one chapter where you've overwritten it or changed something. And you can roll back to any of those versions and you can also compare it against them at any time. Because I, you know, back in the day when I was using Microsoft Word and writing my first novel when I was 17, I would, um, look, I think I was much braver then as well. But, you know, I'd save multiple versions. I'd be like, okay, this is, you know, the novel with, the bad guy being this person, or this is the this is the novel version with the car crash, and then I'd have to try and go back through all these multiple word documents to figure out like where I'd gone wrong. 
And Scrivener has been a lifesaver in that regard for me, just being able to have these snapshots. And, you know, most of the time when I kill something, and, and I have always, all my books have like, you know, just fields of corpses littered behind them of all the darlings that I've killed. But usually with Scrivener, I use the snapshot feature and I, I never go back to it. But it's having that safety net, knowing it's there, that if I do realize I've messed up, that I can go and find it and I don't have to scratch through like multiple versions of the same document, that it's right there, easy for me to find, is life-saving. Yeah, I don't use snapshots, but I can understand the appeal of that safety net for sure. Um, I I tend to sort of just manually make snapshots if ever that uh, if ever I need to do something similar. I'll literally just make a copy of the little subscrivening document and shove it in an old drafts yes. folder. Yes, my old drafts is massive. <laughs> it contains multitudes. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I, as regular listeners will know, I'm a huge advocate for Scrivener. It changed my writing life in the same way. Just it's so many things about it that, you know, for me, the way I write make it so much easier than working in uh, Microsoft Word. Yeah. But I wanted to, one thing that hasn't changed for me is how I make notes, which Scrivener helps with, but it didn't change how I do it. And I wanted to mention that because we were talking about that idea of letting things rest in your subconscious and stuff. Do you carry a notebook around with you? Not every day. Um, but I do a lot of research trips for my book. So, you know, Broken Monsters is set in Detroit. So I did two different trips to Detroit, um, one in summer and one in winter to like go and explore and talk to people. And, uh, I'll take lots of notes. I'll use, uh, the voice recorder app on my cell phone to like record kind of interviews, um, to get like pieces of dialogue to be able to like go back through that. Um, and also I use my camera phone and, and that's kind of a visual diary. And that's the thing I think I rely on most is because it'll also kind of jog memories and remind me of like, you know, really tangible, or interesting details. And actually in the South African edition of The Shining Girls and Broken Monsters, both covers feature some of my original cell phone photos. So that's my claim to fame, cover designer, photographer, <laughs> person. Do you think your background as a journalist and reporter helps with that initial sort of with those research visits and that data gathering, as it were? So much, um, because I'm used to being able to go into, having to go into a place and try and get the story really quickly. And, you know, and there's an element of like, you know, and I address this in Broken Monsters, that there's a critique of like parachute journalists who just kind of parachute in, write about the cool urban farm and then parachute out again. Um, but I really try and spend a lot of time with getting people who live in the places I'm visiting to show me around, show me their version of the place. And to kind of dig into that as much as possible. Yeah, whenever I go somewhere, I always like to uh, see, and it sounds such a cliche to say the real place, but yeah, I like to hang out with people. I don't want to get taken on a tour by dignitaries or whatever. I want to see people's apartments. I want to see the supermarkets. I want to see the bars where they go to drink or the parks where the kids go to hang out. You know, the, uh, the ordinary mundane stuff because in that is where you'll find the culture of how a people live definitely um and to get their kind of unique perspectives on a place because they've lived there the whole time you know and and they really understand and and know um how things work what the problems are um and i'm very interested in those kind of interesting perspectives and i do think journalism has given me that um ability to to try and connect with people really hard and fast and not, not in an ugly way, but you know, to try and to really be able to listen, I think is the most yeah. important skill. All right. Let's get to the big question. 
do you outline or are you a pantser? <laughs> um, I have a big outline and then there's a lot of pantsing in between. <laughs> How does that work? So I always know my beginnings and my endings and I know some of the big kind of, you know, high points that I, the highlights that I have to hit. Um, and, and then the rest of the time I'm figuring it out and, and kind of letting, letting that subconscious magic come, letting that kind of intuitive thing go. Um, my co-writer on Survivors Club, which is a Vertigo original horror comic, uh, he's, he has Asperger's and he finds my approach drives him insane <laughs> because he just wants an absolute pure outline. And he, he talks about me in D&D terms and he's like, I think he described himself as kind of, I don't know, maybe the cleric. Uh, who's got the plan and like, you know, it's very cautious and I'm the barbarian. I'm just, I've just, I'm like, cool, <laughs> let's go in there swinging and like figure stuff out. And I'm like, well, I don't know if I'm quite the barbarian. I don't think I'm kind of, you know, warping out, but I, you know, I do. I would have said more the thief. It sounds like, yeah, you know, you've totally got, you've got an idea of what your objective is. You just understand that the plan may change at any moment. Exactly. See, I'm, I'm going to tell him that. I'm going to tell him I'm not a barbarian after all. <laughs> Even though I'm sure you would love to be a barbarian. Uh, yeah, no, I should be really fun. Um, <laughs> so how many, I mean, how detailed is this? Are we talking, do you just write a couple of pages or is it bullet points or? It's all in my head. Oh, really? You don't write it down at all? No. Wow. No. I mean, you know, sometimes I might have to write a pitch. For the Shiny Girls, I had to write a pitch. Um you know, because we sold it off the first 30,000 words. Um, but yeah, but a lot of the time I really, I really like to let it evolve. I really like to simmer and see, and see what happens. Um, I guess that puts me more on the pantser side, but, but I do have a plan. I, I'm going to go with thief. I'm a thief. <laughs> see, I, I, maybe this is just a function of my age or something, but I can't imagine trying to keep that in my head because I, I just know from experience that I would get halfway through and go, oh, God, I forgot about this really important thing. Yeah, I, I, I'm looking forward to reading your book. I think maybe I need to re-strategize. <laughs> well, that seems to be working for me. So, you know, I might well, I, I mean, yeah, I was going to say, if it's, hey, if it's working for you. And that's yeah. another thing that I always, you know, talking about how everybody's process is different. And the counterpart to that is, if it works for you, keep doing it. Don't, uh, you know, don't change for the sake of change. Yes, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I think I think definitely like having a better structure and a routine in my day would be very, very helpful. Um, so I'm going to guess that you are a linear writer then. You you start at the start and write through to the end. Yes. You don't jump around or... Because Scrivener obviously allows you to do that if you it wanted does. to very easily. Look, I mean, sometimes a chapter might be uh, she goes to meet him and finds out that he's had the knife all along. And then I'll move on to the next one. Um so, so, you know, I'm not, I'm not above doing just kind of a quick and dirty placeholder, but generally, yeah, I, I need to see how things develop. It's, it's like a Polaroid. Um, you know, things are kind of coming into clarity and then we'll lay out all the Polaroids together and see how they work. Hmm. Interesting. Um, how about, uh, I mean, just a, a slightly random question. Do you have music playing while you write or are you one of these people who needs silence? No, I definitely need music. Um, usually kind of upbeat electronic music, Armand Tobin or um, the F buttons. Um, there's some really amazing South African artists like Marcus Wormstorm and Cybot. And, and I need to, I need to be kind of dancing in my seat a little bit. Um, and it just, that just kind of gives me, it's like, 
it's a little bit of this, it's the same effect as coffee. It's a little bit of anxious energy, which just kind of like carries me through. Um, and that's really important. I'm, I'm completely the opposite. I do have music playing, but it is absolutely not high energy. It's all like, you know, slow ambient right. <laughs> and classical stuff. <laughs> um, it also depends on what I'm writing. Like sometimes I, you know, sometimes I have been like, look, this music is distracting and I actually just need to really, really concentrate and I just need silence. And sometimes right. if I'm feeling anxious already, then I probably need something more calming like Yippa or um, I don't know anybody else's names right now. This is the problem of using Google Play is it just throws up all these artists and I don't actually know who I like anymore. I know I like particular <laughs> songs that are playing currently, but yeah. So when, you've, when you get to the end of the draft then of your first draft and you are then set to go back and revise, what's your revision process? Do you just go right back to the start and effectively rewrite the whole draft? I'll go back to the start and reread the whole thing and make notes on the hard copy printout. And then I'll go and discuss it with Helen Moffat, uh, my South African editor. Oh, so you discuss with your editor before you write your, your own second draft? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, my first drafts are generally kind of quite lean. Um, and my editors, you know, across the board, my American and British editors as well, will be like, okay, but what's happening here? And I'm like, oh, but this whole thing with the missing knife. And didn't you see that? They're like, you didn't actually write that down. <laughs> and I'll be like, oh, right, of course, yes. I might actually need to go write it down and explain it. Um, so normally I write up. I know a lot of writers kind of, you know, lose 50,000 words, but I'm, I'm, I usually kind of add between thirty to 50,000 words from my very first kind of, you know, it's short, sharp, hard, lean. Um, and then I just kind of have to go with padding. But also missing. But also missing yeah, some but- essential information occasionally. <laughs> Um, or, you know, maybe some nuance along the way, or I need to kind of flesh out. Um, yeah, it's the fleshing out that happens along the way. Although I will say with Afterland, I, I dumped 50,000 words, um, which is not like me at all, but it was another part of struggling to write the book was that I had the backstory had become the story and it was all about the pandemic and what happened to them during the pandemic and how they came through. And, and it was beautiful writing if i may say so myself and there was some really interesting character development stuff and um but it wasn't the story and it was getting in the way of the story so again like with moxieland having to dump the language i i just had to like throw out the backstory yeah that's that's that old thing about starting late isn't it yeah absolutely um and my instinct was to start late and then unfortunately i listened to someone's advice where they're like well you really need to know how this worked and what happened to them during this time and i did need to know that but i didn't have to write fifty thousand words of it well, and also what you need to know isn't necessarily everything that the reader needs to know or certainly exactly. not, not in as much detail. Absolutely. And also you can get, you can, you know, you can do those with some kind of small flashbacks that can be like a page long or a paragraph long. Um, you don't need whole chapters about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love like short flashback mm. uh, chapters and stuff. I use those a fair amount. In journalism, one of the things you are looking for, you know, I wrote, I wrote for a lot of magazines for a while. My dirty secret is I actually worked on staff at Cosmo. Um, but you're always looking for the pull quote, which is, you know, it's like a little block of text, which tells you something interesting. That's supposed to like kind of draw you into the story. Um, and it's usually something incredibly insightful or interesting or unexpected. And that's what I learned to listen for when I was a journalist was, was I was always listening for the pull quotes and that's what makes good dialogue. And I think that's also what makes good flashbacks is this moment, which says something about the characters, about the story that is surprising, that gives you a new insight. 
And very, yeah, really good advice that because readers are smart. You know, they will piece stuff together if they, if it, if it's made obvious that a series of cha- short chapters is uh, all a kind of continuous flashback. They will put things together themselves. You don't need to spell everything out for them. Definitely. And and I and I trust my readers a lot. And sometimes, you know, I've had critics say that, you know, maybe too much. Uh, I had one journalist uh, in Belgium say to me, he's like, your books are really smart. And I said, oh, thank you so much. That's really kind. And he said, you don't want to be a bestseller, do you? <laughs> wow. Yeah. I thought it was hilarious. But. Oh, but those are the kind of books I want to read. Like it should be a puzzle. Everything shouldn't be like laid out on the page. Like you are experiencing it at the same time as the characters. Um, and I want to kind of unfold it for you. That's the joy in it. No, I'm ex- I have exactly the same attitude. And I'm sure, I mean, there, there is some truth to what that journalist says, I suppose. I'm sure that, yes. you know, as a result, there are some readers who go, I just don't get it. Yeah. But, you know, you've got to be true to yourself. Totally. And I'm not writing for them. I'm writing for me. And I hope that there are enough other people like me who will like the story that I made. Exactly. I I know so many writers who share that uh, attitude. I think it's a very healthy one. Thank you. So second draft. uh, So lots of notes. Um, Mm. I talk it over with my editors and then I go back and I flesh out. Um, And that's also where I'll do some restructuring if it needs it. and unfortunately, I do write quite complicated books, and I do have to kind of have a board up above my desk with lots of post-its. Um, and ah, so that's where the outline comes in. <laughs> yes, absolutely, totally. And and also, like you know, I think all my books take place over very short spans of time. Um, I think Afterland takes place over like fifteen days. Uh, Broken Monsters is a week. Um, so things things happen very very quickly, and I've got to keep track of everything which happens on Tuesday. Uh, for all the different characters, because I'm writing in multiple different characters' voices. Um, I always have kind of a strong multicast apart from Zoo City. And, um, yeah, so I think that's where maybe a lot of the outlining comes, kind of post, post-lining. <laughs> uh, it's actually something I learned from from making a documentary and working with a really amazing uh, video editor. And we sat down and we broke the whole film up. Um, it was a documentary I made about uh, Cape Town's biggest female impersonation beauty pageant called Glitter Boys and Ganglands. And, and it was kind of finding those story structures and finding like the threads and having just this wall of post-its and having different colors to theme different things, you know, different, you know, different competitors journeys or what kind of the emotional moments were or what kind of, you know, the, the fun moments were, and then being able to kind of switch everything around. Um, I don't do as much of that in writing a novel because it is a linear narrative and kind of, you know, I do, I have laid out those stories, but but yeah, that's where the big kind of restructuring would ha- would take place is kind of doing going from second to third draft. Okay, that's really interesting because that ties into something that I've always felt about your work, which is, as you say, it, you know, things tend to have take place in a short time span, and that's a very cinematic approach. You know, screenwriters will uh, always tell you that you should compress the you know the the time span of a movie should be as short as possible Mm. uh, unless you're writing some kind of family generational saga but you know if you're writing a genre movie you really want it to take place in as close to real time as you can uh, which obviously is incredibly unrealistic but very dramatic yeah and yeah your books have always felt cinematic in that way and i know that you have written 
short films and you've written TV and stuff. So I always wondered, does had does one kind of play into the other or is that just your instinct, you know, right from the start? Well, that was my other day job before I became a full-time novelist. Uh, I went from being a journalist to um, working as a, a TV writer, specifically working in kids' animation. And we launched uh, South Africa's then biggest animation project. Uh, it was called Urbo, The Adventures of Pax Africa. I'm not responsible for the title. But it was for kids and it had to be 24 minutes. And you know what? You didn't have time to mess around. Like you, and someone was going to have to animate everything. You had to basic script writing stuff, you know, come in as late as possible to the scene, get out as early as you could, um, and really kind of just keep the story moving. And everything had to either move the plot forward or reveal something about character or, or you know, be a really cool action sequence or a comic moment to give you some relief in between. And I think that also taught me a lot about writing as much as, you know, writing journalism is, and specifically kids stuff. Because it had to be clear, it had to be fast, it had to be sharp, and also some poor b- was going to have to draw it. So you really had to think of, again, <laughs> you know, you had to come back down to what is and isn't possible, and to have those kind of constraints was also very useful creatively. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, thing that I've uh, drawn from video games, actually, is uh, it's a similar sort of thing where yeah. you, there are some things that you just want to write, and the, you know, the developers will say, actually, no, we just can't do that. Yeah. We can't have more than, I don't know, four main characters wa- moving around <laughs> and talking on screen at the same time. And you're like, what? No, we just can't. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter how much you want it to happen. It's not going to happen. My favorite advice, which stays with me, is um, when we were working on Survivor's Club, this horror comic, which is about what if the 80s horror movies were real and where are those people today? Um, our artist, Ryan Kelly, who's absolutely wonderful, but we had one scene with seven characters talking and he was like, guys, you might as well ask me to draw it. Would you like to make my life harder? Would you like to set this in a room full of bicycles? <laughs> so that's now my shorthand for overcomplicating stuff is it's a room full of bicycles. <laughs> yeah, I know, Ryan. He's a great guy. He's um, wonderful. Really amazing yeah, but, artist. But yeah, seven characters all talking at once. No, is a lot to ask he nearly killed artist. us. He nearly killed us. <laughs> So, but then also we messed with him. So every time we wrote a script after that, we were like, you know, interior, the house, uh, a room full of bicycles. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, all right. Let's start to round this up then. So uh, what parts, when you sit down to write, after you've finished with social media and all of that, and you do actually, uh, you know, finally get around to writing, in day, <laughs> what are the parts that you really look forward to? Like, what do you really enjoy doing? You know, what kind of scenes or kind of chapters? Oh, God, I love dialogue. If I could just write dialogue, I know that means I should probably just do scripts. But um, I have so much fun with dialogue. I really like it as a way of kind of exploring characters and, like, how people think differently. Um, And I really struggle with action scenes. I really have to think very hard about them. I have to kind of choreograph them. Um, And hopefully it looks you know, effortless at the end, but I can't tell you how much kind of effort went into it. It's like synchronized swimming, you know, it looks graceful on top, but underneath you've got, you know, you're doing like crazy hard work to stay afloat <laughs> and propel yourself upwards in all these interesting ways. That was the, the counterpart to that question was what parts do you dread? So that's funny because that's exactly the same as me. I love dialogue, hate writing action scenes. Yeah. It's also just hard. It's hard to like make action, you know, on the page seem like really, um, it's not a movie, you know, so you've really kind of got to get to it. And I think where what I try to do with action scenes is I try to find the emotional heart of what's going on. 
And I think that's also why, you know, I got some critique on The Shining Girls for people who found it too violent. And, and I was like, that's interesting because, you know, the violence is generally very short and it's mostly from the woman's perspective. It's not the serial killer. We're not kind of riding along in the shoulder, kind of getting off on it, um, which many, you know, kind of works of detective yeah. fiction do. But it is, and I, and I realized that a lot of what people were reacting to is the emotion of it, you know, that because you're in the woman's heads and they're, they're afraid and they're angry. And I think one character's death in particular, where she was thinking about her kids and she was fighting back for her kids was really upsetting. But that's also kind of what I was trying to do was to try and make violence upsetting and not cool and slick and everything else. So, you know, my process, I think, for writing action scenes is to become, bring it down to kind of the emotional heart, but then also have some kind of cool matrixy choreography as well. Yeah, which is very hard to pull off in prose. Yeah. So speaking of like kind of prose, then what is uh, the last thing that you read where the writing itself, not necessarily the story of the plot, but the writing itself really impressed you and why? Oh my God, just everything. It was M.K. Jemison's uh, The City We Became. Oh yeah. And it's uh, the writing, the characters, the plot. It's about, um, it's basically Lovecraft as, or Lovecraft horror and kind of the city of Riley and, you know, this great cosmic dread and monstrosity in the form of gentrification that eats the city alive. And these people who become um, the kind of totems of the city and the characters that she chose for New York, which is absolutely wonderful. There's someone representing each of the boroughs and uh, Bronx was my favorite because she's like this hardcore old lady activist who was there in Stonewall. But then she's also now runs an art gallery for kind of um, artists of color. And, and she's just such a badass and she's such a tough talking but also deeply vulnerable and fascinating person with this kind of very complicated history. I, I loved everything about it. It was just superb. And I, and I actually, I don't like to read books where those things are separate. Like I don't want to read a book that's just beautiful writing, or I don't want to read a book that's pure plot. Like I really want, I need those things to come together in the books that I read. That's my taste. Um, because if you have plots with no character, that's a Michael Bay movie. Uh, you know, or not good writing. And if you have just beautiful writing, I don't know. It's it's like having it's like having all the Art Deco features, but not actually the structure of the house standing up. You've got very very beautiful bricks and kind of you know the the ironwork lace work, but I need I need a story to be somewhere that I can live for the time that I'm reading the book, and it needs to be a fully constructed house, and it also needs to have beautiful details to keep me there. That's a nice way of putting it. Needs to be a house you can live in. Yeah. So, Lauren, where can people find you online? Uh, uh, Lauren Bukas on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and Facebook um, and probably some other social media that hasn't been devised yet. Um, yeah. It, and it's just my name. It's a tricky spelling. It's B-E-U-K-E-S. Are you like me? Are you in that fortunate position where nobody else has your name spelled exactly the same way so you can just grab everything yes i mean i did just grab everything i see that there are some other lauren bukes in the world now but you beat them to it but i beat them to it <laughs> all right what work of yours would you recommend listeners check out if they're not familiar with your stuff um i'm really proud of this very messed up short story that i wrote called ungirls it's part of um uh it's part of an amazon collection called disorder it's a ebook and audiobook and I actually directed a friend of mine who's an actor she did live reading of it it's 
what if sex dolls uh, were made from actual human body parts? That would be like kind of so it's lab grown sex dolls that don't have heads, so that they don't count as kind of fully human, uh, but they're fully poseable and they're kind of living and breathing. Um, and you got to put them in a nutrient bath at the end of the day, and then they make kind of robot heads for them. But of course, uh, this young woman is an actor based in Cape Town and she, she's also a sex worker and she excels in doing kind of the voiceover work, um, for these robot heads, for the dialogue and stuff. And her friends are sitting around at the table, like having lunch with her and they're like, Oh my God, like what's the dirtiest thing that you've had to say? And she says, because obviously it's very lonely, desperate men who are buying these things. And, and she says, the dirtiest thing I've had to say is, Oh my God, you're just so funny and interesting. And <laughs> so I'm kind of, you know, it's, it's a look at kind of incel culture. It's a look at loneliness on the internet. It's, it's like sex and human connection. Um, and also doxing culture, like cyberbullying, which of course has happened to a number of my female friends um, who dare to be vocal online. So I kind of wanted to kind of try and bring together this story, which incorporates all of that. Wow. And sorry, what was the name of the anthology again? Uh, it's called The Disorder Collection, uh, but you can buy Ungirls as an individual piece. And then, of course, my new novel, Afterland, is coming out in the US in July and the UK in September. Fantastic. Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Anthony. This was really fun. And thank you all out there for listening to Writing and Breathing. If you enjoyed the show, why not become a Patreon supporter? Patrons get exclusive access to episodes before they're published and other goodies. So go to patreon.com slash writingandbreathing to make your pledge. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter. And that is also where you will find all of the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write, remember to breathe. I'll see you next time.